0: This is The One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. I remember many years ago being in a class with Gary Keller, and he asked, what's the purpose of a goal? I remember thinking to achieve a result, but he shared an idea that made me pause. He said he believed the purpose of a goal was to be appropriate in the moment. It's actually not about the result, it's about who you need to become to earn the right to achieve those goals. It's all about who you need to become. And as we have gone through a pretty crazy year with the pandemic, it's forced all of us to ask different questions. How do we need to show up as leaders? What does the future of work look like? And for many of us, our life has meaningfully changed as a result of asking these questions. And that's the purpose of this podcast. It's for us to ask ourselves questions on when we imagine the the future of leadership, who's the person that we need to become to be that future leader? And it's why your future as a leader starts now. The person you're going to meet today is a four-time bestselling author, including his most recent book, The Future Leader, Nine Skills and Mindsets to Succeed in the Next Decade. You'll notice that our conversation is much like two friends just having a conversation about the research that he's done, what he's learned, some of the ahas. Our hope is that as you listen to this episode, you ask yourself the question. Our hope as you listen to this conversation is that you consider where you have an opportunity to improve your mindset. When it comes to a future leader, what skills you have the opportunity to improve and ultimately so on brand, what's the one thing you can do such that by doing it would make becoming that future leader easier or unnecessary. With that, let's get into this conversation with author of the future leader and host of the future of work podcast, Jacob Morgan. Take us back in time. What sparked your interest in the future of work and leadership? Well, I suppose how it depends on how far back you want to go.
2: Probably to give people a little bit of context to go way back. Uh, I come from an immigrant family. So my family came from the Republic of Georgia, the former USSR. And when they ended up in the United States, they didn't have any money. They didn't speak the language. And through many, many years and lots of hard work, my family tried to build... A, a life for themselves, and so I grew up with that mentality. Was seeing my parents working really hard. Uh, you know, my mom sometimes would come home from work crying because she didn't like her job. My dad would uh, get up at five every morning, come home seven o'clock each night, and I grew up seeing this as a as a young kid. And I remember that it, it instilled kind of this mentality in me that. If you want to be successful in life, you need to work hard and you need to pay your dues. So I was never a good student in, in high school and community college. My GPA was, a I think, a 2.7. And finally, my parents were like, all right, well, you're going to college and this is your last chance. And if you don't do well in college, you're not going to get a job and you're basically your life is going to be over. Because that's what my parents knew, right? Um, you have to work hard. Otherwise, you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. So I went to college. I double majored in economics and psychology, worked really hard, graduated with honors. And I was very, very in the corporate world. So my first job out of college is for a technology company in Southern California. And I remember when I interviewed there, I was promised that I would be doing all these really amazing and wonderful things and traveling the country and meeting with entrepreneurs and business leaders. And I was sold on the story of the company. So much so that I was willing to forego my three-hour daily commute to downtown Los Angeles and, and back home. And a couple of months into my job, I'm doing data entry and cold calling and PowerPoint presentations. And one day, one of the top executives comes out of his beautiful corner office in downtown LA. And he says, Jacob, I have a really important project for you. Get over here. So I, I run over to this executive and I say, yeah, what is it? Well, what can I help you out with? And I thought in my mind, I'm like, all right, I paid my dues. I did the grunt work. I've been here for four, five, six months. I'm ready for something bigger. So that's, that's my mindset as I'm running over to this executive. And as I go over to him, he, he takes out his wallet and he gives me a $10 bill and says, I'm late for a meeting. I need you to go down to Starbucks and get me a cup of coffee. And that was the first moment in my mind where I was like, okay, something is wrong here. I know that there is this mentality that you have to pay your dues. I did not want to go by that story. And I remember... That was the first time that I was thinking, is, is this really what work is all about? Is, is this what it's going to be like for me to have a full-time job? In my mind, I thought I was going to climb the corporate ladder, go back and get an MBA, and you know, one, one day become the CMO of an organization like uh, IBM or Coca-Cola, who knows. Uh, so it was really that getting this executive a cup of coffee that sparked my interest in, is this really what leadership is about? Is this really what work is about? Is this what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life? And the rest, as they say, is history. That was around 15 years ago.
0: So you go from there, you fast forward, you have... your are best-selling author, you've written four books, including your future book, The Future Leader. You've interviewed more than 140 leaders, collecting four mindsets and five skills that were prevalent what did the journey look like to going from, hey, I'm six months into my career to, <laughs> I write a lot of books.
2: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a fascinating story. And um, as you know, with entrepreneurship, the journey is never linear. It's uh, side to side, it's up and down, it's all over the place. And so after I had that experience getting coffee for this executive, I mean, I started Googling stuff. I just started Googling things like how to make money for yourself, how to make money online, how to become an entrepreneur. And eventually that led me to the Bay Area. I had actually one more full time job after that. But originally I started doing things like search engine optimization, social media consulting. You know, this is way back in the day when these things were just becoming popular. Right. And that evolved into doing consulting for companies using social media internally. I don't know if you remember the days of Yammer and Salesforce chatter, where employees would use basically like what Slack is now. So I started doing consulting around that. And then that evolved into this theme of the future of work and employee experience and leadership. And it was just this constant pivot based on where I thought things were going and based on what a lot of people that I was speaking with and working with were, were telling me. So it was it was a series of pivots that led me to where, um, where I ended up writing this book on the future leader. Uh, and I'd say probably for the last I don't know, five years or so, I've been in this space of leadership, future work, and employee
0: experience. And I've been um, quite content with where I ended up. One of the things that I've learned to really appreciate working with Gary and Jay is how important research based yeah. content is. You know, anybody can go out and write a book and just share their ideas, but to actually yep. do the research to make sure you're sharing the best valid ideas possible is a whole nother ball game. Yes. Walk us through what went into the future leader.
2: And I'm actually so glad you said that because that was one of my frustrations. Um, There are tons of leadership books out there. I mean, there's no shortage of... It's probably one of the most crowded spaces. And a lot of leadership books, at least I found, were either based on uh, a small handful of examples or anecdotal data or stories. It's not like those things were bad. I mean, they, they were, of course, interesting. But I was looking for something more substantial. And as I would speak at a lot of conferences and events, I would get questions from a lot of attendees and from a lot of business leaders I would work with. And all the questions were very future focused. In other words, what do we be and what do we need to be doing now to prepare for the future? And I had some ideas around this, but I didn't actually have any tangible data or research. And so I started Googling, what is leadership going to look like in the future? How is leadership changing? And there too, I was frustrated because I didn't find anything that was meaty, nothing that I could, you know, grasp onto that I felt was real. So I thought this would be a very interesting idea for a book? And how do I go about in collecting the data? And I thought, well, why don't I interview the CEOs at some of the world's biggest companies who are actually shaping the world and shaping leadership? And that's how that journey began. And I didn't actually know how many CEOs I'd be able to interview. As you know, CEOs are very protective of their time. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll get lucky if I get 20. And then 20 said yes. And I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll go for 30, 40, 50. And people just kept saying yes until I ultimately ended up on 140. And I also was fortunate enough to partner with LinkedIn and we surveyed nearly 14,000 employees around the world. So it was a very long and grueling process. Uh, as you can imagine, with every CEO you interview, you deal with a PR team, you deal with a legal team, you deal with approvals. And so it was, it was tough. But I think in the end, it, uh, it turned into something that I hope is, is valuable and like you said, research-based. What were some of the most important insights you learned having these conversations? Oh man, there were so many. There were a few things that I was shocked by and a few things that I really learned from a lot of these business leaders. I'd say one of the things that I was most shocked by is that as I was doing research for the book, I found that most people actually end up in some sort of a leadership position at some point in their 20s. Maybe you're in a retail store. Maybe you even work in a a grocery outlet. But at some point in your mid-20s, you get put into some sort of a leadership position on average. And a leadership position meaning you are responsible for somebody else. For example, I used to work at a grocery store and and I I got put into a supervisor position. And I worked in a movie theater. I was a supervisor and I'm responsible for three, four, five people. But most people don't actually get in any kind of formal leadership training until they're in their mid-30s, early 40s. So what that means is that on average, there's a period of around 15, maybe even 20 years between when you become a leader versus when you were actually taught anything related to leadership, which to me is insanely mind boggling because we have leaders around the world who are responsible for the lives of others who have no training on what it means to be an effective leader. And that's because we always assume that leadership is reserved for just a few people, right? I mean, you bring in a lot of money, you close the biggest deals, you stay at the company for a long time, and then you get access to this exclusive leadership training program. And that's the way that we've always thought about it. Um, so that I thought was very shocking that there's this big gap there. As far as interviewing all these business leaders, the, the main, I guess, nugget of wisdom for me was what I call the notable Nine. And it was trying to identify what are the most crucial mindsets and skills that aspiring and future leaders need to have. And there were four mindsets and five skills. I don't know if you want me to go through all of them or if you want me to list them out. But I'd know. say hit, hit them quickly. Okay, cool. So four mindsets, global citizen, servant, chef, and explorer. Global citizen is about thinking big picture and surrounding yourself by people who are not like you. The servant mindset is about understanding that you serve your team your customers, your leaders, if you have them, and also yourself practicing self-care and having humility and vulnerability. The mindset of the chef is about balancing humanity and technology. And the mindset of the explorer is about having a growth mindset, having curiosity, being agile and nimble. So this is how leaders need to think. And then we have five skills, which are things that leaders actually need to know how to do. First skill is the skill of the coach. And contrary to popular belief, The skill of the coach is not about making people more successful. It's about making people more successful than you. (laughs) I love that. And it's, you know, when you think about it, you could spend five minutes with somebody and make them more successful. And you could teach them something. You could share something with them. And then as a leader, you can say, oh, look, You know, I made Jacob more successful. I spent five minutes with him. That doesn't require a lot of effort. It's not hard work. Mm -hmm. But if you are leading a team and you say, you know what? How do I make everybody on this team more successful than me? How do I create future leaders? All of a sudden you realize, oh my God, that's a lot of work. Time, energy, resources, commitment. That's what a future leader does. Next, we have the skill of the futurist. And the skill of the futurist was ranked from these CEOs as the number one most important skill for future leaders. And this is all about thinking in terms of scenarios and possibilities. So to give you an analogy, do you play chess by any chance? I'm, I am
0: purposely learning.
2: Because, ah. I, yeah,
0: it's, it's one of those things that I watched Queen's Gambit on Netflix. and went, <laughs> okay, I, I see value. And also my kids are five and seven in getting them started. And this could be a mining the dominoes up. Having 48 family experiences this year is my number one personal priority. So oh, nice. how might I to line them up? Oh, very cool. Okay.
2: Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that show did wonders for the, for the, the game of chess. Um, so as you're learning chess, you know that when you are playing the game of chess, you always have to think in terms of different scenarios and possibilities and moves. Like if you move your pawn, you need to think, well, what are some ways that my opponent might respond? They could move their pawn, they could move their bishop, they could move their knight. It's not just a singular kind of like, I'm going to move my pawn, my opponent's going to move their bishop. Think in terms of scenarios and possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's something that leaders oftentimes struggle with. Leaders pick a path and they go down it. And they don't try to think about other things that are out there. You know, futurists, there is this misconception that a futurist predicts the future. But the reality is that a future simply helps make sure that you're not surprised by what the future might bring. There's a the big difference. When we say you're not surprised by what the future might bring, it's kind of like, okay, I I thought about that as a possibility. So I'm not surprised, you know, in the game of chess, you think, well, my opponent could respond in one of these moves. And when they do it, you say, okay, well, you know, I, I thought that might be something you might do. And so that's what the skill of the futurist is about. Thinking in terms of scenarios and possibilities. Then we have the next skill, which is the skill of the technology teenager, which is exactly what it sounds like. Just being tech savvy and digitally fluent, just like teenagers are. The skill of the translator is about listening and communication. And the last skill of Yoda is about emotional intelligence, specifically empathy and self awareness. So these are the notable nine. And the way that I like to think of this is, this is your blueprint for how to become a successful leader. Master these four mindsets, practice these five skills.
0: As you reflected on these notable nine, did you discover about yourself? Oh man, nobody's ever asked me that before. That's a very good question. I suppose a few things.
2: One is that I could do a better job of practicing these things, both personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. For example, the empathy piece, the self-awareness, you know, the emotional intelligence component, I think is always something that I can improve upon. I also learned that I, I love having these conversations with business leaders and learning um, learning from them. But as far as what I learned about myself, I think it's just that these, these are some of the things that I need to focus on myself. So I was able to identify which, which of these areas am I struggling with? Which one of these areas do I need to improve upon? I'd say that's probably the most important thing I learned.
0: I, I had an interesting aha as you were sharing the five skills You talked about the coach is about actually making people more successful than you. And when you said that, it was like a series of dots got connected for me that hadn't been connected before. A a meaningful percentage of my time is invested in advising very senior leaders inside of companies, whether it's a small company of five people to some of the largest companies in the world. And the thing that keeps coming up is they'll always say, man, it's amazing the value that gets unlocked when it's like a steel manufacturer and the chairman of the board will be like, you know nothing about steel, yet look what just happened. Or it's a pharmaceutical company or a logistics company. Like The industry doesn't matter. The coach, you don't actually have to be the expert. The thing you actually have to be able to do is ask great questions. And, And I also realized as you went from coach to futurist, to tech teenager, to translator, to Yoda... At least in my experience, so this is anecdotal just for me, focusing on mastering, asking great questions made it easier to be a futurist, made it easier to be more tech-savvy and digitally fluent, made it easier to be more of a translator so I was a stronger listener, made it easier to have higher emotional intelligence, empathy, and self-awareness. Yeah. And it it all started because two years ago, I realized I needed to form a habit they would allow me to master asking great questions. And the lead domino was just to ask one question a day when I naturally would have told somebody the answer.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's an amazing thing that you realize because leaders, especially when you're leading a team, sometimes you know the answer to something. And sometimes you. it's very tempting as a leader when you know the answer to something, they just give the answer. And somebody will come to you with, um, with solutions and you say, no, 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 this is how you do it. But as a leader, if you want to give more accountability, if you want to give more autonomy, if you want to grow those around you, you sometimes need to restrain yourself and not focus on giving people the answer, Uh, but asking questions that
0: help your team get to the answer. So you ready for a crazy experience? I'm ready. When This is before I co-founded this company with the co-authors of the book. When Jay and I were on the phone... And he told me what the job description was. And I said, I'm your guy. He said, great. um, The next step is for you to cast a vision for what you think the business should look like. And I said, great. Happy to do so. I want to make sure I'm in alignment with what yours and Gary's vision is. Why don't you share with me what that is? And he said something that really shifted how I viewed leadership. He said, we have an idea and we're not going to tell you. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. And, he's, and, I, and I said, I asked the obvious question, which was, why? <laughs> and he great. said, if I give you the answer, then it's our answer and it'll never be yours. You'll never yeah. feel ownership over it. And if we give you the wrong answer, who is ultimately accountable? Yeah, you know, he said, you know, we're, you know, I want, I want you to bring the answer to us, and it's going to be like bowling. Like we're going to put the bumper rails up. We're not going to let you go off course. We're going to guide you down, but it's going to be your answer.
2: I you will that. own it, and you will be accountable for it. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And it's actually, so hearing you say that reminded me of, um, so I interviewed the president of Microsoft uh, in the U.S. recently, and I asked her what separates mid-level leaders from senior-level leaders. In other words, why do some people get stuck in mid-level leadership positions and others really grow and excel and they get to become senior executives in their company? And she told me that it comes down to, do they think of themselves as an implementer or an owner? And she said, mid-level leaders are oftentimes implementers. Mm -hmm. In other words, other people tell them what they do and they do a really good job at implementing it. Whereas what breaks you out of that mold is when you start to see yourself as an owner and you start to create the vision and you start to own the direction and you don't just implement things, but you shape them. And I thought that was a very, very profound thing. And it very much reminded me of what, um, of your story there of going between Mm -hmm. implementing somebody else's vision
0: versus owning and creating the vision. So it's very much in line with what you experienced. I heard a similar idea, which was somebody asked, what's the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire? And outside of the number of zeros, it was a millionaire sees an opportunity and asks, how can I do it? A billionaire sees an opportunity and doesn't lift a pinky until they find a person who can do it inside their world. I like that. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. So getting to do so much research and having all the conversations you've had, what did you discover around what it means to be a leader?
2: A couple interesting things here to mention. So first, one of the hardest questions for a lot of these leaders to answer was how do you define leader and leadership mm. and the reason for this and i thought about this and i thought this is this is bizarre you're running a company of tens hundreds of thousands of people you're responsible for m- many many billions of dollars and then this is a hard question for you you know all of them were easily able to answer things around trends and mindsets and skills and challenges and where's the future going and ask them a personal question around Pretend I'm an alien and I'm not from this planet. I have no concept of leader or leadership. How do you explain it to me? And this is where I got the like, the pause, the that's a good question, or nobody's ever asked me that before. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because it's kind of like trying to explain and define water to somebody. It's, you know, we all know what water is, but when's the last time you actually had to define and explain water to somebody? And how would you actually do it? And it's because leadership is a very ubiquitous thing. We all see and experience leadership all the time, many times a day. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to work, when you go to your kid's soccer practice, uh, when you check in for a flight, we see and experience leadership all the time, even on TV. And as a result, we all assume that we know what good leadership is and who a good leader is. And one of the things that always fascinated me is that I would go into a lot of organizations. And this is an organization, they would have the, you know, their core set of values. Trust, honesty, integrity, do the right thing. you know the list goes on and on. And so in that same company would we'll find that there are leaders that everybody loves and admires and respects, and in that exact same company, there are leaders who everybody hates and runs away from, and nobody wants to work for this person. And I would find that so interesting because it's one company, one set of values, one culture, two different types of leaders. How does that make any sense? And it's because the people who promoted them have different definitions of what leadership is. Mm. So one of the things I always encourage leaders to do is to take a step back and just define leadership for yourself. Who is a leader you look up to and emulate and respect and admire? And the crazy thing is that your definition is going to change over time. And if you ask this question to yourself every, I don't know, six months or once a year, as you get different experiences, your definition is going to change. As you see different things, your definition is going to change. But the point is, you need to have this definition in place because it acts... It it helps create filters in your company for who is the type
0: of leader that gets promoted. One of the things that we've been very focused on and curious about is the idea of core values that every person, whether they realize it or not, there's always a set of values that are guiding their decisions. It's like that moment that we've all had where your mind is telling you to do one thing, yet your heart's kind of pulling you in this different direction. Every single one of us has a set of values that we hold at the highest level that become a compass for what we say yes to and what we say no to. I'm curious... How you saw core values come into play with these leaders? We actually
2: also see this even during uh, during the pandemic that we've all been experiencing. It's fascinating because values are so. The way that I like to think of values is um, they're a set of obviously there's the value piece, right? The, the words, the phrases, but they need to be backed up by a set of actions. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're just words. And what I have found over the years is that a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders have values, but they don't back them up by a set of actions. I'll give you an example. (laughs) Uh, So not too far away. And I've shared this story uh, maybe a handful of times in the past, but it's it's one that I really love. So not not too far away from where I live in the Bay Area in Alameda, there is a waffle shop called Oli's Waffle Shop. And they also own um, Wine and Waffles next door. Husband and wife, entrepreneurial couple. They have around 40 employees between these two restaurants. If you walk into one of these restaurants, you see that on the walls, they have pictures of the people who work there. And so you go in there and you say, okay, this is a company that values their people. They understand that the business would not exist without their people. COVID happened. This husband and wife entrepreneurial team, they were actually in the process of getting ready to build their dream home. So they bought a plot of land somewhere. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and they were getting ready to basically build a dream home for themselves and retire. COVID happened and they saw that a lot of their employees were were struggling. They couldn't afford to pay for their rent. they They couldn't get groceries for themselves and their families. What they did is they ended up selling this plot of land, forgetting about their dream of building their dream home. And they put the money back into the business to help pay for their employees. This is an organization that has a values uh, that has values that are backed up by a set of actions. Their values are, we appreciate our people. We, we care for our people. We put our people first. But it's backed up by that set of actions. So I, I, I see this story of Oldies Waffle Shop. And then you hear all these other stories of organizations, these multi-billion dollar companies that... They say they put their people first and they care about their people. Meanwhile, they're Mm -hmm. cutting people left and right. And in my mind, I have a very hard time grasping, how is this little waffle shop really willing to put their people first and make so much sacrifice to take care of the people who built their business while your multi-billion dollar company where your CEO is getting paid who knows how many millions of dollars is having to let go of hundreds or thousands of people? did you really do everything you could to help them? So what I think, and especially during COVID, what we've seen is which organizations simply have the values as far as words on paper and which organizations out there have the values that are backed up by a set of actions. Uh Because here's the thing, values are words and phrases. Everybody that's listening to this, you're probably a part of an organization that has similar values to another organization out there. I mean, do you think your company is the only one that has trust as a value or do the right thing as a value or put people first as a value or creativity and innovation? These are just words. Everybody has these values. What separates organizations from each other is how these values come to life, if they come to life.
0: This, what you're touching on right now, is actually one of the um, most impactful things that I've gotten to witness with this company. Impact is, is one of our core values. And I remember somebody shared with us a while ago that your values aren't your values unless they cost you something. Hmm, like in it. that moment in time, like you really know it's a value if it requires you to say no to something, to say yes to this, and if it costs you something. And I've, I've kept that with me for the last three to four years. And it was actually tested recently in a very big way. Impact is one of our top core values, as is on authenticity. And anytime we work with a company, when I sit down with the senior executives before we start the engagement, I ask them two questions. Fast forward six months, you're getting out of business with us. Why? They give me the reasons. And then I ask them, fast forward six months, we're firing you. Why? And it always shocks them. And I tell them, if, if you don't follow the program, if you, if you don't walk the talk, if you don't live your values, like we lay this out super clear. A few weeks ago, I had a circumstance come up where I was about to facilitate a workshop to cast a 10-year vision for this organization. And then based on that, identify the one-year goals and put that into a simple one-page business plan we called a GPS. And we had the top 25 leaders out of a 40,000-person organization attending this. The night before the workshop began, I was sent a document that showed their core values. I've been working with this organization for over a year. And when I read the values, I realized they were a marketing statement. They were not a compass for their decisions. Hmm. And in that moment, I felt the pull on my values. The easy thing to do would have been to have ignored it. The hard thing to do, which was the right thing to do, was to address it head on and to make sure that they honor those values and that they're woven into the 10-year vision. It created one of the most strenuous, contentious debates I've ever been a part of. And um, it got to the point that I almost fired them as a client. And they're our number one revenue source. Jeez. And I had a conversation with the chairman. And um, basically, he said he was willing to commit to putting it in place. And when we came back the next day, they really cast a vision around what it would look like to live their values. And he did something amazing as a coach. He asked a question and shut his mouth and let the people do the talking. Yeah. And what they created from a vision standpoint and put into a plan, like actually brought me to tears. It was so impactful. Wow.
2: You know, this also um, touches on something else, which I think is, is very important for, for leaders, especially. Uh, you know, for many years, and you could probably relate to this, there used to be this mentality that as a leader, you, you kind of want to play in the gray area, um, meaning you don't really want to take a stance on a lot of issues because you don't want to upset other people. -hmm. Uh, Right, you want all your customers to be happy. You want all your employees to be happy. You want all your stakeholders, all your stakeholders, to be happy. And so, if there is a a tough issue that comes up, you are kind of like, ah, you know, I'm I'm neutral. And that used to be very much the mentality that leaders had. We're going to play in the gray area. We're going to be neutral to everything and everyone, and not take a stance. And the the problem, the fear that a lot of leaders have, is we don't want to upset anybody else, so we're going to be neutral. But the biggest fear that leaders should have isn't that you're going to upset somebody else. It's that other people don't know what you stand for to begin with. And so for leaders out there, um, whether you are a leader of a team or uh, you know, even if you're an individual contributor, don't be scared to let other people know what you stand for. Because now more than ever, there is this quest, this desire for purpose and meaning and connection and being a part of an organization and a team where you're making an impact. And you're not going to have any of that stuff if the people that you're working for or if you yourself as a leader are trying to be neutral all the time. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So don't be scared that other people are going to disagree with what you stand for. Be scared that other people don't know what you stand for to begin with. And I think that goes back... Say that again! Don't be scared that other people are going to disagree with what you stand for. Be scared that other people don't know what you stand for to begin with. And, and this to me, I think is a huge shift for leaders and something that a lot of them are, are really struggling with uh, because it's it's new, right? It's it's new for leaders to be able to go out there and say, look, I'm not neutral anymore. I'm I'm going to talk about... Issues and and social causes and injustices. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for things that are important. You might not be on the same page with me, but it's important for you either way to know that these are the things that I care about. These are the things that I value. So I'll say that one more time. As a leader, don't be scared that other people are going to disagree with you or disagree with what you stand for. But as a leader, your biggest fear should be that other people don't know what you stand for to begin with. They don't know your truth. And this is something that I think a lot of leaders need to work on now. And it goes back to this idea of values, right? I mean, why have values if you're not bringing them to life? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make
0: sense. Well, and the thing is, we all have values. Yeah. The question is, are you clear on what they are? Because when you are, all of a sudden, those moments when you feel like you're being pulled in a direction that doesn't feel right, or like you're going down the wrong path, you suddenly have clarity about why. It's, it's you're probably not lining what you're doing up with your values. You're, you're distracting from them. Yep.
2: No, I couldn't agree more. And this also goes to one other tangential thing that I talk about in the book. And that is this idea of your job, your purpose, the meaning, and the impact. And a lot of times people say but we hear the phrase purpose and meaning used interchangeably. And and purpose and meaning, these, these things are are different. So I, I kind of want to give a little bit of distinction and clarity on these things. I love that. What, what tends to happen for a lot of people, and in, in the book, I give a, uh, an image. And it's an image of these four boxes. And it starts off with your job, your purpose, your impact, and your meaning. So let's start off with the job. Everybody knows what their job is. It's, it's what you got hired to do. If you're in customer service, your job is to answer phones. If you're in sales, your job is to close deals. Everybody's got that taken care of. Then you have the purpose piece. The purpose piece is why you're doing that. So why are you answering the phone? Why are you talking to customers? Well, your purpose is to make customers' lives better and easier, to get customers to want to transact with you. Your purpose of being in sales is to generate revenue so that the business can grow. Your purpose, if you're in development or you're an engineer or a coder, is to create better experiences for users, for customers. So there too, I think people are pretty good. Then we have the impact. The impact is, is is the outcome of what you're doing aligned with the purpose? So let's go back to the customer service agent because that's the simplest one to use. My job as a customer service rep is to help make the lives of my customers easier and better. Is that the actual impact that I'm having? Mm. What if I'm talking to customers on the phone and my impact is actually that they're more upset? They're more frustrated. Or the flip side, what if instead of just making the lives of my customers better and easier, I'm turning them into evangelists? They love it so much that they're buying more. They're telling their friends. So you want to think of your purpose or the, I'm sorry, the impact as something that should be greater than or equal to your purpose. So the impact should be greater than or equal to your purpose, never less than. You Mm -hmm. never want the impact to be less than your purpose. And then we have the last piece, which is meaning. And meaning is oftentimes something that is very subjective to you. In other words, what are you personally getting out of it? So maybe I'm in sales because I like building relationships with people. I like the human connection. I'm in development and coding because I like tackling complex problems that other people can't figure out. So the meaning piece is what you personally get out of it. And I think what we start to see in a lot of organizations is that if you're an entry-level employee, you're pretty good usually on your job. You have some insight. You know, you're you okay, decent on your purpose. But oftentimes, you don't know your impact because you have no insight into what happens beyond your role. You don't talk to customers. You don't hear any stories. You don't know... Is what you're doing having an impact on the business? And the meaning piece... Uh, leaders, by the way, are good on the job, the purpose, and the impact. And I think everybody in general has issues with the meaning piece. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll give you a story, just a personal story. I used to work at a movie theater many, many years ago, uh, you know, probably over 20 years ago. And at the movie theater, they, they used to have this contest. And if you could upsell... Uh, whoever could upsell the most number of customers, at the end of the week, they would be given a gift card. So basically somebody would come up to the concession stand, and they would order a medium popcorn and a medium drink, and I would say, "Well, for a dollar more, you can upgrade both of them to a large." And at the end of the week, the person who would be able to do the most of those upsells would get like a $50 gift card. I would have no idea, you know, why are we doing this? Where's the money going? Is the business struggling? Are we investing in something new for the fi- like no insight. San Diego Zoo similar program. You go to the concession stand And the employees there, they try to upsell you, get you to walk away with something more, a stuffed animal, something. The difference is is at the San Diego Zoo, the employees know why they're doing it. At the San Diego Zoo, when you upsell your customers, you know how the extra revenue and profit that you're generating is going to help fight conservation efforts, how it's helping um, fight the extinction of an animal, how it's going to contribute to the zoo. And so you have more incentive, more clarity more agency to do these things. Whereas when I was working at a movie theater, I had no idea why I was doing it. I was just mm-hmm. doing it. And so I think the, the storytelling piece as a leader, the more insight you can give to those who work with and for you, the better you're going to be able to achieve
0: the goals of the business. Let's fly to a 10,000 foot level. When you think about the future leader, what are the handful of things that people can focus on that would allow them to become that future leader? Probably the first thing that I would start with is by looking at the notable nine, which were those four mindsets and five skills. And if we want to repeat those, the, the four mindsets was one, global citizen, thinking big picture and surrounding yourself with people who are not like you um having a servant mindset being the chef meaning balancing humanity with tech and being an explorer being growth minded and, and and curious and the five skills was one the coach making people more successful than you the futurist which is more about thinking in terms of different scenarios and possibilities of the future the tech teenager being tech savvy and digitally fluent the translator which is about listening and yoda which is about emotional intelligence empathy and self awareness yep exactly uh, so i think
2: that's Definitely a, a place to start, uh, but there are two two other things that I want to encourage people. Well, I guess two or three other things that people can do. Um, one is, and this is probably the most impactful thing that anybody can do, and it's something that I call the one percent a day. And the way that you think about this is, if you can improve by one percent a day, by the end of the year, you're going to be thirty-seven times better. So the the challenge, I think, one of the things that a lot of leaders struggle with is they they hear about change and transformation and they say, I, I don't have time. I can't do it. I'm running a business. I have a team. Uh, who, who's got time to sit and do this stuff? Right? It's, a, it's a, a very fair and, and realistic um, pushback. So that's why I always encourage people to improve by 1% a day. So what does 1% a day actually mean? And by the way, this doesn't mean that you just do something 1% one day and then you stop. Every day you do something 1% mm-hmm. a day to be better. So tomorrow, for example, 1% a day you want to improve as a leader. What can you do? Go up to one of your employees and say, hey, I just want to say thank you for the hard work that you're doing. I appreciate you. 1% simple. The next day after that, take 10-15 minutes, listen to a podcast or read an article about something that you normally wouldn't listen to that's tangentially related to your business. Maybe you watch uh, a 10-minute explanation video on YouTube about what blockchain is. The day after that, you want to practice empathy. Somebody comes over to you, they have an issue they need help with. Instead of just saying, I'm sorry you're going through that, you'll be fine. Take 10 seconds, take a breath and say, you know what? I remember a time when I felt something similar. I know how you feel and this is what I did to overcome that. 1% a day means exercise, eat healthy. Somebody told me that one of their 1% a day was they were going to drink a liter of water every day because they know, and this is what I talk about part of under the the mindset of the servant, practicing self-care. If you can't show up to work each day, um, taking care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, how are you going to be in a position to lead others? So practicing self-care, eating healthy, exercising, drink one liter of water a day. So we're talking about small things here. I'm not asking people tomorrow you wake up and you transform like some sort of a superhero into this unrecognizable unicorn-like leader. I'm talking about doing small changes on a regular basis. There's a great quote by Ben Franklin. He said, "Small strokes fell great oaks." meaning small things over time yield to great results. <laughs> well,
0: now you're now you're talking the one thing,
2: yeah, one one percent right? a day, man. I mean, it's 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 huge, and it makes a dramatic difference. And It's funny because when I've given talks to organizations before, they embed this into part of their culture. And I've I've revisited with some of these companies months after I've given a talk. And they actually... You you would see leaders that go up to each other and they would say, Hey, what what was your 1% for the day? What what did you do today to be 1% better than you were yesterday? And it just becomes a part of the discussion. You know, What did you do? How did you improve? I think the other thing that's really important for leaders to remember, and this is the the visual that I want people to have. And it's actually what I have on the cover of my book. It's the cover of a lighthouse. And I had a really hard time, honestly, when I was trying to figure out how do you visualize what it means to be a leader? And if, for example, if you go to Google and you type in leader and click on Google images, you'll see a lot of the very same images, right? Like a little sailboat leading other sailboats, uh, an airplane leading other airplanes or a, like a, a duck leading other ducks, you know, the, the usual, right? One in front of the other. And I thought, well, that doesn't really capture what I'm trying to go for. And ultimately, I settled on this idea of a lighthouse because throughout history, lighthouses were used to guide mariners and explorers to their destination, to their homes, but also to make sure they get there in a safe way. So as a leader, your job, your responsibility, your privilege is to build yourself up, become this lighthouse so that you can shine your light onto others and onto this sea of uncertainty that we're all a part of, But you also need to remember that a lighthouse without ships in the water is useless. In other words, anything that we've been talking about for the last 50 minutes doesn't mean anything if you only focus on yourself. The skills, the mindsets, the approaches, the values. It's not just about you as a leader, it's about those around you. So you need to remember that you are the lighthouse. You are guiding others, not just yourself. And that's kind of a visual that I really, really want people to take away uh,
0: when they think of themselves as either a current leader or an aspiring leader. I love that. Well, Jacob, where can people learn more about you and your book, The Future Leader?
2: There are a couple uh, places. I mean, my, my website is thefutureorganization.com and my email, if anybody has questions or wants to reach out, is jacob at thefutureorganization.com. Uh, for people who want to get a downloadable PDF uh, of the skills and mindsets, you can go to theleadershipdigest.com. And the book is available wherever you can find books. Uh, I think we created a URL for it as well. uh, Getfutureleaderbook.com, but it's available on Amazon. I mean, wherever you want to buy a book, it's there.
0: Awesome, Jacob. Well, thank you so much for investing the time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. there you have it, our conversation with Jacob Morgan. If you would like to get his most recent book, The Future Leader, you can head to his website, getfutureleaderbook.com, or you can find the book, The Future Leader, anywhere books are sold. And you can also check out his podcast, The Future of Work. As I reflect back on the conversation that you just got to listen to, the thing that really stood out to me is that the path to getting everything you want starts by getting one thing at a time. When he talked about the four different mindsets, I certainly held up a mirror and thought about where am I currently strong and where do I have an opportunity to improve? When he talked about the five skills, I did the exact same thing. Where am I strong? Where do I have the opportunity to improve? And the most interesting thing, then he closed with this, the idea of 1% a day in our terminology is just do one thing a day. I know what it felt like to just ask, okay, how do I ask one question a day when I naturally would have told? And just by doing that one thing every day, that was my 1% improvement. And the domino effect that was unleashed in my life personally and professionally is extraordinary. It's been one of the most powerful habits that I have formed. It has improved my leadership. It's improved my ability when I train and facilitate. It's helped me as a podcast host with the quality of questions I asked. It's made me a better husband. It's made me a better father. It was one lead domino that actually made everything else easier or unnecessary. Our hope is that you'll invest even 30 seconds to consider what that lead domino might be for you after this episode. And then you get to decide if the time during this episode was an investment or an expense. It's an investment if you hold it accountable to delivering a return. And the only way you can do that is if you take that one thing and put it into action. So do it. If this episode has brought value to you, please think of somebody you can share it with. It helps us reach more people. And if you're new to the show, click the subscribe button so all future downloads will automatically be downloaded to your device of choice. And thank you so much to those of you who have recently left us a rating and review. It's one of my favorite things to do is to read what you've had to say about the show. If you've not yet left us a rating and review, please consider leaving one on this episode. It helps us reach more people and fulfill our mission, which is to help you better invest your time so you can achieve extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods, and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.